All right. Good morning, everybody. The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And if you want to follow along, you can find it printed on page 5 of your bulletin. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. You should get used to some short scripture readings over the next several weeks. All right. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. God, we need, not just ask for, we need your presence. And we're excited, encouraged, because that is precisely what you promised to give us When we draw near to you, you are present with us in your word. You are present with us among your people. You are present with us by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and among us. So come, enliven our hearts, electrify our soul's engagement with your word and glorify yourself. Make even this time a time of worship by the way that we listen to you and to your voice, the way that we hear and engage, the way that we respond and commit ourselves to conforming our lives to your truth and to your grace. And so receive this time as a time of worship. Speak into our lives and receive the fruit of glory from us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we began a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of the moral law of God, a moral law that itself can be summarized as the call to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. A new series on the Ten Commandments and We looked at the preface of the Ten Commandments last week that's captured here in verses 1 and 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And last week we looked at those words and saw how important those opening words are because they remind us that we don't follow the Ten Commandments to earn God's approval or acceptance. It's not we obey God's commandments, therefore God loves us, but rather the reverse. This is the logic of the gospel. God loves us, therefore we obey. Because the preface tells us that rescue and relationship came before the rules, that God's love came before his law, and that the very first word of the Ten Commandments is grace. And that changes everything. This is so defining, in fact, that we're going to include this preface. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of 
bondage, out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We're going to include those introductory words in our scripture reading each week as we move each week through one of the Ten Commandments. We don't ever want to forget that we do all this learning about God's commands in the context of his love, in the context of his unbreakable grace. Today we're looking at the first commandment. Maybe last week you expected us to look at the first commandment. Today we will, and that's found in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Perhaps those are familiar words to you. Maybe you've heard them before. Maybe you've grown up hearing them. Maybe they are brand new, at least articulated in that fashion. The simple yet profound command is echoed again and again throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. Psalm 86, 10, to God, you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. 2 Samuel twenty two thirty two. who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? Matthew 4, verse 10, from the mouth of Jesus, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, the apostle Paul continuing, there is no God but one. And again, in Romans chapter 3, verse 30, there is only one God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This commandment is about who or what we treat as God of our lives. Is it God or other gods? Who or what we treat as God in our lives? In other words, it's about worship. Worship. I'm not talking about a a religious service that you're a part of. I'm not talking about just songs that you might sing. Of course, that might be included in that. But by worship, we mean the, the, the praise, the allegiance, the obedience, the devotion that we owe exclusively to God, the God of the Bible. So let's unpack this commandment a little bit further. What does it mean? How do, we, how do we understand this a little bit more personally? And so we're going to explore really two questions in our time remaining. What is this commandment against and what is it for? So two questions we'll answer. What is it against and what is it for? And as we talked about last week, that's simply two sides of the same coin, a positive and negative expression of the same call to worship. So first, what the first commandment is against, and it's against the worship of alternate gods, false gods, substitute gods, anyone or anything that's not the true God of the Bible. In other words, the first commandment is against what's called idolatry. So this prohibition then, let's break it down a little bit. Of course, it includes forms of polytheism, the worship of many gods, and pantheism, the belief that all things are God. That includes the conscious worship of false deities like Baal or Apollo, Diana, 
or Manlambo or Tala or Amana or Krishna. So it does include that, as well as the worship of nature that is increasingly popular these days in different forms of neo-paganism that is being embraced. I'm not talking about the good and even Christian appropriate kind of reverence and awe and respect and care that ought to be applied to God's creation, to nature. That's good. We're talking about the worship of nature as God itself. This prohibition also includes, we need to say, the occult, which is also rising in popularity these days. Witches and Wicca are making a comeback. Just look at your local bookstore. And the Bible would say this involves seeking supernatural help from fortune tellers, psychic mediums, Ouija boards, and the like. What the Bible calls in places like Deuteronomy 19, the practice of divination. That too here is prohibited by this commandment. But to understand the meaning of this commandment and what it's against, we have to dig a little bit deeper beyond the formal religious commitments that we just described, beyond the conscious way in which we actually apply our worship we got to dig deeper, deeper into our hearts. And by this, I mean beyond our formal conscious commitments. And so, for example, there's a kind of false religion that every one of us slips into. I want to point out that it's the worship of myself, and it's commonly known as pride. Did you know that that, too, is an application of this first command? Pride violates the first commandment. And it expresses itself in many forms, this pride, doesn't it? In the form of self-sufficiency. I don't need anybody else. And not especially God. The the pride of of boastfulness. I I must be exalted. You see, name-dropping isn't just annoying. It's a form of self-worship. Defensiveness and invulnerability. That's a form of pride, too. I can't be seen as weak or flawed. I can only be seen as exalted, impenetrable, worshipful. There's the pride of being self-serving, right? Always serving my needs, my desires, my interests, always come before others. And here's one that might be a surprise to some of us. The the pride of self-pity. You say, whoa, 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 that sounds like the opposite of pride, but in fact, the heart that struggles and wrestles with self-pity is a heart that says, "I I actually deserve better treatment. And I'm upset that I'm not getting it. It's one that clings to a a deep and sometimes angry sense of worth. One that's in fact inflated and beyond what's healthy and well-ordered. Pride might even manifest manifest itself even in your resistance to the Ten Commandments itself as we're going through this series. Look, I understand that might be ignited in your hearts. You say, well, how? Maybe the meditation behind the resistance is rules. I make the rules. I I get to decide. Nobody tells me what to do. And there you can hear the, the part of a soul that is saying, God, 
I don't know that I'll call myself God, but certainly I'm owed all the rights and privileges of the deity. Pride, have you considered that? Have you examined your heart to see that too as something that God is speaking about and speaking to us about this morning? Pride is a kind of self-worship, seeing yourself as deserving God-like treatment and demanding that others give it to you. Well, that would be enough, I think, for us to walk away with, with much to work through and to think and pray through, but let's keep digging into this commandment. In the 16th century, Martin Luther, the great reformer, offered this concise summary of the first commandment that I found to be really helpful, partly because of its brevity. It's real short and snappy, and it can really help us. He said, what is this first commandment all about? You shall have no other gods before me. He said this, we must fear, love, and trust God more than anything else. We must fear, trust, and love God more than anything else. And here's the observation that we need to grapple with. There's always an anything else. There's lots of anything else's, in fact, that compete for the status of God in our lives. Again, beyond our conscious worship, beyond our formal religious commitments, there are God alternatives, substitutes, that often rise up in our hearts. And how can we tell what these are? Well, take some of these questions and ask yourself, what do you most fear? Uh, what's that worry that's sort of in a low-grade fashion been buzzing around in the back of your mind and heart? Is it losing your job? Is it losing your health? Is it being alone? Is it the disapproval of a parent or a spouse or a friend? Second question, what, what comforts you most? What comforts you most? Uh, what, what is it that gives you, uh, provides you a sense of security, especially in moments of uncertainty? Where do you run to quickest to give your sense, yourself a sense of, I'm going to be okay? Is it financial stability? Is it your latest relationship or accomplishment? Is it your intellect? Is it your, your fallback? Is it uh, at least I'm out of debt or at least I'm pretty smart? What is it that gives you comfort and security? Thirdly, what do you most fear? What comforts you most? What do you most love? In the sense of, what is it that you most want? That ultimate thing, that thing that you're chasing after, the thing that you must have. Is it freedom? Is it romance? Is it success? However you might define any one of those things. Friends, will you take a second to answer those questions today? Or sometime this week? And if you identify any of these, and by the way, these are false gods that we're unpacking, exposing, and Lord willing, dismantling false gods in our hearts. If you identify any, will you receive God's invitation to turn from them, to repent, uh, to return to God, and to restore him at the center of your being where he alone belongs? What are those things, your fears, your comforts, your deepest and highest loves? 
And before we move off this particular point and set of observations, I want to leave you with a few brief notes, a few brief pointers that I think are important for us growing in our understanding of how this first commandment applies to us and how it really does expose what goes on in our hearts. First of all, keep in mind that we're talking about the practical and actual worships of our heart. So in other words, you might be a Christian right now, like, well, I believe in Jesus and I worship the God of the Bible. You might be a professing Christian, but despite your stated beliefs, the alternative God, or actually the real God, at the center of your life might actually be money or might actually be your self-image, or might actually be control. So don't get confused between your professed beliefs and commitments and the actual operation of your hearts. This is why it's so self-deceptive. This is why it's so important for God to call us out. It's a work of grace. It's a healing work for him to actually tell us the truth about ourselves. Hey, How about them gods in your heart? You might even be an agnostic person. You might be someone that actually does not formally believe in any God, but you may come to see that you too, more than you knew, are bowing, as it were, to gods. And in fact, that they are gods that will never forgive you, never love you. These are the things that we need to grapple with in our hearts. You see, it all depends on how we understand this idea of worship. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan writer, once said in response or in explication, explanation of this commandment, he said, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. To trust in anything more than God is to make that thing a God. What is it for you? Or the great church father from the third century Oregon of Alexandria, Egypt, he wrote these really provocative, helpful words, what each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. What do you trust? What do you admire? What do you most love? Those are the questions that are most revealing to us. That's the practical actual worship of your hearts, even beyond your formal stated beliefs and commitments. Secondly, these patterns of worship are formed not by the decision of a will or by the thoughts of our minds. They're rather formed by our routines, our rhythms, and our rituals. This past week, I spent a little bit of time rereading portions of this very fine book that I commend to every single one of you. It's written by a philosopher, a Christian philosopher named Jamie Smith, James K. Smith, and it's called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. A helpful, very helpful book on this particular topic and understanding how we can live in line with this command, but more broadly throughout life. And what Dr. Smith argues in this book is simply this. He says, we think, generally speaking, that we are most defined by our thinking, by our conscious beliefs. This is a product of the Enlightenment. We think, therefore, we are. That's been taught to us and told to us when actually... Human beings' destinies, who we are as people, is most defined not by our thoughts, but by our desires. You are what you love. 
what you most love. That is the engine that drives your destiny, that drives your humanity. And then Dr. Smith continues explaining, and our deepest desires and our ultimate loves, which are defining to who we are, you are what you love, not just what you think, and not just what you consciously choose, these desires and ultimate loves are shaped mostly unconsciously by our life's routines and rituals. They're formed by habits. So it's not just by the books that you read. It's not just by the beliefs that you say, yeah, I agree with that. This is precisely why there's so often a big gap between what I know in my head but don't do in my life. How many times do we say that? The reason for that gap is because what you know in your head is not primarily what drives what you are and what you ultimately do. It's your wants. It's your loves. It's your desires, which are shaped not consciously, but most often subconsciously by the habits, the routines, the rituals that you apply to yourself every day, every week, year after year after year. And for that reason, the things that actually are shaping us most, maybe more than we know, are things like our scrolling on our phones, habits, our consumptive habits, the the mindless clicking on Amazon or whatever site of your choice might be by the mantras and the slogans that are repeated that we're like almost literally uploading into our brains and into our hearts that are over time again and again forming our desires, what we think is important, what we think life is all about, what we think is good, what we think is valuable, what we think makes me into a more attractive person, a more uh, uh, desirable person, a more meaning, uh, successful or meaningful or significant person. These things are shaping us. These habits we have about the first things we do in the morning, the music lyrics that we listen to, that we can hum to, that we tap our feet to, and we know the words to, but not knowing how much they actually are shaping our hearts. And so, if we want to actually grow in our loves or actually detect our misguided loves and desires, the idolatries and false gods of our hearts, here's your homework assignment. Consider your rituals and routines. Consider your habits and interrogate what loves and desires, what story they're telling to you. Because again, it's happening, whether you know it or not. Our calling in light of scripture is to run with a counter set of habits and routines and rituals that form us in light of the love of God and with a better story of the gospel. We'll come to that in a moment, but will you at least examine the routines and rituals that are already forming you and me every single day? Thirdly, just want to observe and call you to notice that every sin that we can catalog throughout Scripture that you might know in your heart, that you see in your life, every sin starts with a violation of the first commandment. That's why it's ordered at the very top, not just because it's the most important, but because you can't break any other of the commandments without first breaking the first commandment. Because underneath all of our sins is a false God that's directing our lives away from the love of God and neighbor and towards these other gods and most of all towards ourselves. 
You cannot break commandments two through ten without first breaking commandment one. Idolatry is the sin underneath the sin. And if you look back on those three questions that I raised earlier, you can actually start to hear and notice some of those things. So, for example, so your greatest fear, you say it's losing your job. Well, is that why then you're addicted to your work, unable to take Sabbath and completely neglect your friends around you? Or you say, oh, oh well, I, I am, in fact, afraid of being alone. I admit that. That is a fear of mine. Is that, why, is that what drives why you hook up with strangers at that club? Is that what it is, the intimacy that you're craving, that you're seeking to solve, the sin underneath the sin? So you find your comfort in finances. You're beginning to see that. Is that why it's so hard for you to be generous? Your grip being so tight on your possessions because of the way that it comforts your heart? Okay, you're seeing the false god, but now it's making you a miser. You're not loving neighbor either. You see, it's important for us to see the ways in which these things operate underneath the surface and then give fruit, poisonous fruit, to all other kinds of vices and sins in our lives. So God is giving us a moment of grace here. He's actually coming to us with some tough love to say, do you see it? Do you see it, friends? So that you can be free of these things. That's why I'm telling you. Do you see the grace and the gift of God telling the truth to us in the first commandment? That's what it's against. Idolatry, false gods, alternative gods. What is it for? We'll take this more quickly. What is it for? Clearly, it's against false gods, misdirected worship. What is the first commandment for? God. The worship of God. You shall have no other gods besides me. In other words, have me, says the Lord. And to unpack what exactly it means to actually pursue God, to love God, to worship God rightly, well, the Westminster Larger Confession, which was written in the 17th century, gives us one of the most important and detailed explanation of what each of the Ten Commandments mean. You're going to hear a lot about this uh, larger catechism over the next couple of weeks. And this is what it tells us this first commandment is all about. It calls us to what? Here's a long list. Fasten your seatbelts. The knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man being careful in all things to please him and sorrowfully when in anything he is offended and walking humbly with him. There's a footnote after every single one of them with multiple Bible verses supporting every single one of those words and phrases 
because this is the testimony of Scripture, the call to worship God, the call to love God. And you notice, even in that long list, I gave it to you long for a reason so that you can see the intent to convey that this is an all-of-life call. Not just the religious department of your life, the worship of God, the love of God, the centrality of God, not, not just what you do on Sunday mornings, or what you do when other Christians are around. No, this is all of life. Not Sundays, but Sunday through Saturday. Not just in the religious department of our lives, but in our work. Do you think thoughts about God? Do you give God credit? Do you run with the energy that God supplies as the apostle has written? Do you have goals set for yourself that are oriented towards God? which is to say for his glory and for the people that are made in his image, they're good as well, loving your neighbor even through your work. Are you thinking about your work? Are you desiring through your work in light of the reality of God? How does it shape your relationships? How does it shape your home life with your roommates, with your friends, with your family, with your children, with your spouse? How does it shape your dreams? How does God shape your fears and the way that you relate to your troubles and your struggles, your pains, your sorrows, and your trials, all of life should be shot through with a desire to see God in all things and to love him in all things. And we bring every part of us to the table. So not only all of life, but all of us. We love him with our thoughts. We love him with our desires. We love him with our choices. We love him with our motives. We love him with our goals. As Luke 10 tells us about the commands of God, it's summarized like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, every part of you devoted to the worship and the love of God. You see, the first commandment tells us that God deserves our highest praise, and this is for God's Glory. God is zealous and jealous for his own glory. But it's important for us to understand, too, that the first commandment is also for our good. How so? We did earlier talk about how there's a blessing in God telling us the truth. It's a mercy for him to help us to self-reflect and to repent and turn from false alternative gods in our lives, our idols. But here's another way in which this is for our good. First, idolatry, we have to understand, disfigures and dehumanizes us. Right? When we're chasing after, I must have that relationship. I must have that form of happiness. I must have that form of success. I must have that acclaim, that credit. We live in fear. We're dehumanized. We're torn apart by all these warring, competing commitments and passions within us. And it leaves us in a perpetual state of fear and exhaustion. The poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a wonderful poem called Idols. And she has this great line in there that struck me studying for this sermon a couple weeks ago. She said, how weak the gods of this world are. And weaker yet, their worship made me. The worship of false alternative gods makes you weak, makes you less human, disfigures you, 
defeats you by calling us to worship him alone. God is actually rescuing us from that. He's rescuing us from spiritual death. That's good news. But put more positively, yes, God in this commandment clearly demands to have ultimate place in our hearts, the highest place in our lives, the exclusive place in our worship. That is a demand of God's. But in commanding that, what is it that we get when we love him as he commands and worship him as he commands? What do we get if we're obedient to worship no other gods but me? Psalm 36, 15, 5. For with you, God, is the fountain of life. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know what that's telling us? This is not a harsh command where we come out losing. This is a glorious command to worship him where God gets the glory and we get Life. We get joy, which can only be found when we fall on our knees and worship and adore Him as He's called us to, and not only called us to, but created us to. The great theologian from the fourth century, Augustine, has a, a wonderful line in his book called The Confessions, where he says, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Which is to say, what? God has designed your life to be in communion with the God who made you. And to the degree that you attempt to live apart from him, to the degree that you attempt to give your worship, your affection, your love, your energy, your attention to other gods. It's not just depriving God of the praise and glory he deserves. It's depriving you of the life that you were meant to have. It's a suicidal pursuit. You are not receiving the rest of soul. The joy that he promises to give you, you have made us for yourself, and we are restless until we rest in God. So God, you shall have no other gods before me. What is his command about? Rest in me. In me you will find rest. In me you will find joy. In me you will find life that is truly life. Hallelujah. It's beautiful, and it's an invitation, and it is good news. If it's in worshiping God that we find ourselves, if it's in loving God that we find the height of human happiness, if it's in trusting him that we find life itself, God is offering to you in this command what your soul most needs, what your heart most craves, and it's God. So will you turn to him? Will you seek him? And he promises you, if you seek him, you will find him. This is not simply a heavy-handed command to bow before a jealous God. It's an invitation to the greatest news in the world that God gives you life. 
And you say, well, how do we cultivate this kind of worship? Then that sounds good. I, I want that. I, I, I need that. I, I, I'd like to pursue that. How do you cultivate that kind of love for God then? Really quickly, we're closing with this. Remember that point about routines and rituals? You, you can't think your way into the worship of God. You can't think your way or even consciously hmm, choose your way, we can qualify that a little bit, into a life of love for God. What you can choose and determine is to put yourself in the way of the rituals and routines that can form your desires and your heart to result in the bearing of fruit of love for God. And what are those habits? What are those rituals, those practices? What is it that you need to to start to do so that almost unconsciously your affections, your life is being formed by things that are pushing you towards God and not away from God, towards the love of God and not away from the love of God? What are those things? Number one, this is easy stuff. Come to church. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. 2024 is a good time for you to commit yourself to coming to worship at least two, three, four. I'll leave that between you and God. I will tell you this, though. If you do not regularly, routinely, habitually, habituating your heart, come to worship on Sunday mornings. You cannot cultivate the love of God in your heart. You cannot grow spiritually. You cannot fulfill this command. Why? I said it before. We are being ritualized every minute of our days by other things pulling us to other loves. We are imbibing on other habits and taking in the narrative scripts of other stories every day of every minute of our lives. I mean, even to come on a Sunday morning, even with the power of the Holy Spirit, that's uphill battle right there. But I tell you, if you never come on Sunday mornings, you will be losing that battle. So January, it's still January. It's still time. It's time. Good time to make resolutions and commitments, right? Come to church, friends. Come to morning worship where we have regular routine and repeated practices built into our service spontaneity is good, ritual and practice sometimes is better because we're habituating our hearts into believing, for example, that you can confess your sins because you're doing it again and again and again and again and again. You can come to God with the worst of your sins and he will receive you. And you know what happens after you confess your sins? Immediately you get a promise of forgiveness and pardon. Oh, guess what? We practice that every Sunday morning. You want to believe in the forgiveness of God? Come right here. And we have different parts of the surface. Again, the Apostles' Creed and the hearing of the word and the singing of songs and speaking of songs. Why is it that we sing songs that sometimes repeat themselves again and again? There are different strengths and weaknesses of different songs. A lot of the music we sing actually comes out of the gospel tradition, whether historic or contemporary. And that genre actually has a lot of repetition. Some people say, oh, it just repeats the same thing, the same phrase. You know why we repeat it? Because it's forming us. That repetition is habituating our hearts to believe in the love of God, in the presence of God, in the praiseworthiness of God. Our hearts are formed by repetition. I'm not saying dead repetition. But some of that repetition is intentional because that's how we're habituated into a life of love for God. Worship. Come to church. Number two, commit to a daily-ish 
routine of prayer. Ish. I, I keep getting soft for you, right? I love you. I'm trying to bring you along. Friends, again, it's the, it's the whole idea of how do you cultivate fresh worship, fresh love in your life if you're not stopping, if you're not facing God, how are you ever going to learn to love him? If you're not sitting with him, how are you ever going to believe that he loves sitting with you? If you're never praying with him, how are you ever going to learn to discern his voice? If you never open up his word, how are you ever going to believe in the promises of God, especially in moments of crisis and trauma, when you most need something to cling to, you got nothing uploaded in your heart and in your head and in your life and in your body even. A practice, a habit, whatever the rhythm is. Weekly, every third day, daily, twice a day, the more the better, I promise you. And it's not that it electrifies you every single time, but neither does every meal that you eat. Right? That was the best ham sandwich of my life. When was the last time you said that? But we eat to grow, to live, to survive. And over the course of time, if, we out health, if we've eaten healthy meals, we will be healthy people. It's not because it's always the best meal in the world. Sometimes you kneel, you read a piece of scripture. You're like, what did that even mean? Okay, keep going. You pray to God. He feels a little far, but you keep persevering and you get up the next morning and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. And by the mere habit of that practice, you're beginning to believe God is always there for me. He's never not been there. Even when I got nothing to bring, even when I don't feel like he's there. See, the testimony even of a non-electric time with God becomes the very power of the grace of God at work in your life. He receives me even when I got nothing. He loves me even at my worst. When I feel dead, He loves me the same. He's not waiting for me to produce the lightning. He gives me his Holy Spirit. i got to finish up here, but let me say this. We're praying. Jump in. It's not too late. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 6.40 in the morning, we're praying over Zoom. Every day you can pray using the daily prayer project material, whether electronically or the booklets that we have. Or maybe it's some other routine that you have. You know what? If you don't know what to do in your personal times with God, you're like, this sounds great, but I'm scared. I've never prayed before. I've never read the Bible before. Talk to somebody in a small group. Talk to someone you know. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Yancey. Talk to a deacon, a deaconess. Talk to a shepherding team member, a shepherdess, an elder. We want to walk with you and help you so that we can discover fresh horizons of the love of God. Because as we begin to apply ourselves to these habits, to these routines, these practices, we begin to grow in the love of God. Why? Because we begin to see the love of God. Why? Because we begin to see more of Jesus, more of Jesus who walked through temptation. And when the devil said, drop everything and bow to me and I'll give you everything you need, Jesus said, what? No, 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 no. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only in obedience to the first command. Jesus never lived a minute of his life not worshiping God perfectly. And yet, and yet, even as he renounced 
the temptations of pride to put himself first, to worship himself as it were. Here was a savior who was rejected and who was killed precisely because he was obedient to the first commandment, precisely because he was faithful to God and not just to the pleasing ears of people that wanted to hear what they wanted to hear, precisely because he wanted to save us. Jesus' obedience to the first commandment is what led him to have power in saving us from our sins in this world, from its brokenness. And as we see that, we start to see the love of Jesus grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And as we see him, and as he looms large in our life, as our practices put us before the very love of Jesus, that'll lead you to love him. That'll start to produce a new vision of his greatness and worship worthiness. That'll begin to give us power to forsake all other gods because, oh my gosh, look at this one that I already have. A God who forgives when I break the first commandment. A God who loves me by his grace. A God who tells me the truth honestly. A God who brings me into a life where I can actually start to obey this command, renouncing pride and loving neighbor and giving God the glory in every sphere of life and with all of my life by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you start to see Jesus, then the first commandment becomes a joy. May it become a joy for you and me and for our community. Let's pray together. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come and give us wisdom and insight into our own lives, and then also power to believe and obey. Uh, Give us the right kind of resolve by your grace to instill new routines, rhythms, habits that point us in the direction of the love of God. Make us new, not by our power, but by your grace. And help us to become better lovers of God, individually, collectively. Help us to give you the worship that you deserve for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name.